Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, from a very, very wet San Francisco on December the 21st, 2021. I just looked at the weather forecast. Supposed to rain, certainly for the next week, through the end of the year, through to 2022, perhaps it's 40 days and 40 nights. Um, and perhaps it has something to do with our climate crisis or climate change. Uh, you know, whenever it comes to rain in the Bay Area, people always say, well, it's good we have rain because it will avoid the uh, the drought and it will confront the drought, which is good. But I'm not sure if 40 days of rain is necessarily a good thing for anyone. Um, this, sh this show, Keen On, as many of you know, has, has really tried to focus on climate change and the climate crisis. It's one of the four or five themes, along with racial justice, uh, the future of democracy, future of capitalism, and of course, the pandemic that we've been focusing on over the last uh, year since the show um, went daily. And what we've tried to do is, is have a number of voices about climate change. So for example, one voice was Erin Brockovich, a very distinguished, unique voice who came on the show to talk about the water crisis. I had another very unique voice, Kinari Webb, talking about trees and how trees can heal both the planet and ourselves. Um, we had Michael Lennox on the show talking about decarbonizing the global economy. Uh, uh, Avi Chomsky uh, a couple of weeks ago on the politics of uh, climate crisis. Uh, Jordan Salama, a wonderful young journalist who journeyed up Colombia's uh, Magdalena River talking about the specifics of the climate crisis in, in, in Colombia. And we've even talked about talking about uh, the climate crisis. We had Catherine Hayhoe on, the Texan-based uh, writer and thinker, uh, about the need to talk about climate crisis. So here we have an image for people watching. Uh, in a way, uh, my show is, is a call for stories, uh, stories about water, stories about climate change. But I can't compete with my guest today um, who has written a book about uh, stories on climate change. The book is wonderfully titled 1001 Voices on Climate Change. And the author is a young uh, journalist, Devi Lockwood, who is joining us uh, today. Uh, Devi, I forgot to ask beforehand, where are you joining me from? I'm in Vermont right now. Okay. I was I don't know why, but I thought you were based in Seattle. Where are you actually based? Are you one of these people who's based nowhere and everywhere? Uh yeah, it's you know, interesting. During the pandemic, I have been up here in Vermont, but I'm soon to be moving to Philadelphia to start a position. Uh working on the opinion desk of the Inquirer. So that'll be that'll be my move early next year. I'm really excited. For Congratulations. You're going to be focused specifically on climate or on everything? Honestly, all any and all issues that impact the region, um, including environmental ones. So I'm excited to yeah get back into some some broad brush topics. Well, as I said, this 
book that came out a couple of months ago, A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change, Everyday Stories of a Flood, Fire, Drought and Displacement from Around the World, is a remarkable achievement. You literally did travel around the world by bicycle and car and walking and plane. And of course, it brings to mind uh, 1001 Nights, the Middle Eastern folk tales. Were you specifically trying to emulate that book in this book? Oh, absolutely. I was a student of folklore mythology. That was my undergraduate degree and um, learned about the, the story of Shahrazad in A Thousand and One Nights and wanted to, to emulate her. And what drew me to that story, it's a series of interlocking tales um, in which a murderous king, uh, his wife cheats on him and um, he chops off her head and then decides that he's going to have a vendetta, not only against uh, his now uh, ex, but also all of the women in the kingdom. And so he weds and beds them one by one um, and murders them in the morning. And so Shahrazad, who's the kind of narrator in A Thousand and One Nights, is a trickster. And she decides uh, that she's going to tell the king a suspenseful tale that ends in a climactic moment in the morning. And he's so enthralled by her storytelling that he decides not to kill her because he wants to know what happens next. And what, <laughs> what ends up happening is that she does this night after night for a thousand and one nights. It's three years later. They've got maybe two kids and he decides he's not going to kill her anymore. And what drew me to this story was that Shahrazad is a, a really strong woman who tells stories not only to save her own life, but to change the culture in her kingdom. And I thought that that was something that might be worth emulating or that we might need in this particular moment um, in thinking about the climate crisis. Well, certainly uh, if anyone can emulate 1001 Nights, it's Devi Lockwood. Uh, Devi, uh, one, uh, I've been doing some research about you, some wonderful pieces around uh, the internet. This one from The Guardian, uh, who describe you as a, a globe-trotting cyclist collecting 1001 climate change stories. Tell me the origins of the book. How, how did you come across it and how did you actually do it? How did you finance it and how long did it take? Sure. Um, so Origins, the book, come back to 2013, actually, when I was an undergraduate student. Um, I was living in Boston. Why were you an undergrad? At Harvard. Uh, okay. And I was living in Boston during the marathon bombings. And what ended up happening was that we were on lockdown for a couple of days, which sounds like nothing now. But at the time, it was really impactful, difficult to stay inside. And when it was possible to go outside again, I realized that I just had this really strong desire to talk to strangers and to have conversations with people. And, and so I cut open a cardboard box and wrote open call for stories on that box and fashioned a sign that I could wear around my neck. It was attached by this little piece of ribbon over my neck. And here we have, so, the, uh, here we have a, a photo a later of version that story sign. about climate change. Yeah, I got more specific with the language as I went on. But um, wandering around Boston that day, I realized it was a really powerful way of connecting with people. And I wanted to do that more. And that summer, I... Uh, it was pretty, I mean, it, you, you make it look easy, Debbie, but this, this stuff <laughs> hard, right? It takes a certain amount of chutzpah and willingness to look like a schmuck to do it, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was it was putting myself out there, but it was it was really fun. <laughs> um, and and then that summer, I rode my bicycle about 800 miles down the Mississippi River, um, starting in Memphis, Tennessee, and ending in Venice, Louisiana, where the river meets the Gulf of Mexico. 
And really the farther down the river I rode my bike with that sign, the more stories I was hearing about water and climate change, um, specifically intensifying storms, saltwater encroachment on the land, and people in some cases who were making the really difficult decision of leaving a community that they had called home for generations in the aftermath of a big storm. And I realized that I wanted my story collecting to be a bit more thematic and specific and to focus on water and climate change. Um, water, because it can be really difficult to talk about climate change. And many, but not all of yeah. the climate are experienced through the medium of water. And, and Aaron this- Brekovich tells a wonderful series of stories about uh, water. As I said, she was on the show, this idea that we can't wait for Superman, the subject of her, the title of her new book. Mm, no, for sure. And, and you asked about um, the amount of time and, and financing the trip and things like that. So I applied for a grant from Harvard for a year of purposeful wandering after graduation. Um, and that was about $22,000, which was super generous. I'm so grateful for it. Which it probably uh, was a lot of money to you. You, you were actually I mean, introduced to The suggestion to interview you actually came from... Uh, Jordan Salama. He's great. Yeah. Uh, who, who wrote this, in a way, I guess, a similar book. And like him, um, he he got some money from Princeton as part of his senior thesis. So what impresses mm-hmm. me about both you and him is that you, you made this transition from college to journalism and freelance writing by convincing your college to pay you to do yeah. stuff that you really enjoy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I applied to a ton of these grants and and got, I guess, got good at it by the time I I finished up my time there. But um, yeah, it was just this incredible vote of confidence, like go out, document more of these stories. And and so that's exactly what I did. And really from 2014 until 2019 or so was when I was gathering that material. And around the first two and a half years of that trip were by bicycle. And then I used other forms of transportation as well. I would normally... um... I would normally, uh, Debbie, ask you what your parents thought about this, but I wrote, uh, not I wrote, I read a wonderful piece by you in the New York Times on your mom. You you say you're a daughter of a single mother, so I don't know if you know your father, but your mother sounds even more outrageous than you. So whatever you've done, (laughs) um, in this story, you talk about when she came to visit you at Harvard and you illegally, what, climbed to the roof of the building? Yeah, we went on top of the the small dome at MIT, uh, which was super fun. Because <laughs> she used to be a grad student there, and she's a, it sounds like quite a character. She's um, a, a mountain climber, and a, I, I guess also like you, a, an environmentalist, I would assume. I mean, yeah, my, my mom's incredible. I love her so much. <laughs> um, she, when I was younger, was a professional high altitude mountaineer in the Himalayas. And so she was supported by National Geographic and led expeditions on um, Everest, K2, Gashmirm 2, and Kanchenjunga, um, all of which she was on without oxygen. So it was a very intense way of climbing where you go up and down several times. And I lived with my grandparents during that time. Um, but yeah, my. And, so- and in that New York Times piece, you talk about or you confess about understandably being worried that your mom wouldn't return home, which was not an irrational thought. Yeah, you know, she she almost passed away a couple times. Uh, avalanches are dangerous things, but uh, fortunately she is still with us and she is a, an incredible philosophy professor. And I assume she's thrilled that that you 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 took on this project, that she she was not nervous about you riding around the world and she didn't get you to text or call every 10 minutes. 
<laughs> no. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's always, she told me when she got back that she worried more about me than she let on, but, um, yeah. We, I, I posted a lot on social media, which in an interesting way became a, a really useful backbone for remembering certain places when I was actually writing the book in the last, um, you know, year or two years, but posted a lot on social media just to let my family know I was alive and had a fun, um, fun time calling them from many different corners of the world. So I did, I did my best to stay in touch. Debbie, what advice would you give? That'd be some people watching this of, of your age, maybe older, who also would love to take on this kind of crazy project, perhaps have more conventional family who worry about them, who think that doing some, something like this is so outrageous. What advice would you give people who think they have a book or a remarkable project like the one you've just undertaken in them, but are perhaps slightly nervous about throwing themselves into it? Yeah, I mean, I would say that being alive is inherently dangerous. And none of us know what's going to happen from day to day. Um, if we look at the risk factors you might consider for a trip like this, it's okay being on the bicycle and also being a woman in the world. And I, I don't know how to say this any other way, but I'm going to be riding my bicycle and I'm going to be a woman no matter where I am. So it just seemed like I might as well do what I wanted to do. Um, and that was, you know, I also did a ton of research about um, other solo female cyclists before I went on this trip. And there's incredible women going way back to, I want to say like the, the 1890s, early 1900s with Annie Londonderry and then Dervla Murphy, who is just an incredible Irish uh, woman cyclist who I believe is in her 90s now and wrote a whole series of books in the 60s, 70s, 80s about these incredible epic, <laughs> epic journeys she took all over the world on her bike. And so, you know, reading that, but also the accounts of contemporary women who are doing exactly the same thing gave me a lot of confidence. So I would just say, you know, find your community, find people who are like-minded, who are doing the things you want to do and ask them questions. Um, because chances are, if you have a dream, I mean, you don't want to die with that dream still inside of you. That's that's a cause to be bitter, right? And and we need you to follow that too, if it's at all possible. Well, we certainly need uh, people like you. I don't want to turn you into the voice of a generation because that's obviously absurd and you're very different from probably <laughs> a lot there. of people of yeah. your own age. But the the climate crisis and climate change has become the issue of your generation. Mm -hmm. um, and as someone of your generation recently complained, there's a lot of blah, blah uh, amongst the ruling classes. Um, yeah. How is it affecting? And again, I, I don't want you to speak on behalf of your generation, but as a young person, Debbie, how is this climate crisis affecting you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated to think about the future, I think, because for many people, climate change is this like abstract and far off thing. But we, mm. we really are understanding more and more that it is here right now. It's in your part of the country. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. I mean, it's in San Francisco. It's in Vermont. Yeah. It's it's unavoidable. It is. And, and you know, we had wildfire smoke in Vermont this past summer. That From was us, probably. Fires out west. The, the sky was hazy. We had air quality warnings. And yeah. it was frankly dystopian. Um, and I think that there is just this growing awareness that... Um, we, we the, the time is out, right? <laughs> we no. need to be making these changes right now. And and part of what I was trying to do in, in this project and in the book eventually was just to 
really diversify the way we talk about the issues because we're doing ourselves a disservice if we rely only on the same set of metaphors or the same set of voices, the same narratives yeah. that we've been using already. It's not just polar bears. It's not just calving glaciers. And it's not just people in the far off future who might not even be born yet. This problem is right here. It's right now. It's impacting people not only here, but in places all over the world. And so my goal was really just to make that clear and, and also to give people a chance to speak on their own terms. And, and Is ask- there an element of finger pointing in this generationally? I mean, there are people of your generation who point at my generation and say, you fuck the world up, it's your fault. Do you have any <laughs> sense of that? Is that advisable or is that a, a rather, um, a rather uh, pointless way of thinking about things? Um, I think thinking about it, as a generation is perhaps less useful than thinking about uh, the fossil fuel industry, (laughs) frankly, and and, and the techniques of distraction that they're using to try to deflect. Distraction and destruction, right? Oh, oh, yes. (laughs) Um, And and to deflect attention away from from what they've done and what they continue to do. And, And I think that for me, some of the most inspirational climate activism right now is really directly targeting that fossil fuel infrastructure, getting us to think systemically about the issues, but also think systemically about the solutions. So it's not about individual action, it's about collective action. And that comes back to really directly targeting <laughs> the companies in the industry that got us here in the first place. Well, I am talking to Devi Lockwood, the author of A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change, Everyday Stories of Flood, Fire, Drought, and Displacement from Around the World. Unique, brave project. She wrote around the world um, uh, for several years, um, collecting stories, collecting voices. Uh, Debbie, we're going to take a break um, right now, just for about a minute. And then when we come back, I want to talk specifically about the book and the different kinds of voices that you collected. So hold on, and we'll be back in about 90 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So 
whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We're back with Devi Lockwood, the author of A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change. Uh, Devi, I had some fun on your on your website, um, looking at the map of the world in which you traveled. Um, you went everywhere, yeah. Kazakhstan, Denmark, Scotland, Australia, New Zealand. Was there yeah. anywhere you didn't go? Uh, Antarctica. <laughs> and th that map is incomplete. It's kind of a beta version um, that I'm hoping right. to complete. Well, it looks videos. pretty impressive um, to me. Even an incomplete but, uh, map is blows away most other people's maps. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, so I, I would have, if it weren't for the pandemic, obviously this is a small loss in the scale of things, but um, I, I would have been able to go to Antarctica with the National Science Foundation as something called the Antarctic Artists and Writers Program, which I applied to repeatedly <laughs> until finally I got a yes. Um, but then, and, and then you wrote, but you, yeah. I, I saw that you wrote something about the North Pole for Wired. I, I guess yeah, you, yeah. you didn't go was, to Antarctica, but you did go to the North Pole. I did it. go north of the Arctic Circle. Yeah, not all the way to the North Pole, but I uh, spent about a month in 2018, uh, late summer in a town called Igloolik in Nunavut, which is yeah. 3,000 people. Um, it's a primarily Inuit community and the impacts. Is that of where there's a mosque? Because we had a, a show about uh, mosques in North America and there was a mosque in a, in a tiny Arctic town. Maybe that's not the same. Um, I did not come across that when I was there. But one thing that is really notable about that community and part of why I wanted to go is they have a circus troupe. That's a performance collective that's also a suicide prevention measure in the town, um, specifically to give opportunities for youth to um, learn circus arts travel and then come back home. I actually came across, I didn't know it at the time, but I first came across your work uh, in, in a wonderful piece you wrote earlier this year for the New York Times in August, uh, entitled, What Does It Mean for a Whole Nation to Become Uninhabitable? And you wrote it about uh, Tuvalu, um, uh, a Polynesian island, and I'm quoting here, by some estimates, Tuvalians will, and I'm, I'm Two valians will be yeah will be forced by water scarcity and rising sea levels to migrate elsewhere in the next fifty years. This mass exodus is already happening. Uh, large Tuvalian outposts exist in Fiji and New Zealand. I came to Tuvalu with a question: What does it mean for a whole nation to become uninhabitable in my lifetime? Mm. I guess, in a sense, that's a metaphor for the book and for the planet, is it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, visiting Tuvalu is one of the kind of initial driving factors of this trip. I had read an article about the idea of climate refugees from Tuvalu moving to New Zealand and other countries. And there's a special visa set up that New Zealand has whereby it's relatively easy for younger Tuvaluans to apply for a lottery to migrate. That's been on hold because of the pandemic. Um, but it it brought up some really big questions about you know, what, what, what is home? <laughs> Can home exist in another place? And climate change is a driver of migration around the world. Um, we see that here with, uh, you know, folks from Central America who are coming north in part driven by climate change. Um, but I also heard stories about that in, in Pacific islands 
in Thailand <laughs> um, when, when the climate changes and when rainfall patterns change, that changes where people are able to survive. And it's a big driver of migration around the world, and something that we're only going to be continuing to cope with in the coming decades and um, years to yeah, come. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the last sort of existential crisis to grip mankind was the nuclear one in the 50s and 60s. And back then, we always imagined you could escape um, nuclear catastrophe by going to New Zealand um, uh, or Australia. Here, and here we have uh, Australia and New Zealand um, on your maps. And these are places that are as prone, as, as vulnerable to climate change as anywhere. Yeah, I mean, the impacts, one of the like really interesting things about climate change, I think, is that the impacts are so highly localized, right? And so, gosh, in Australia, we might have <laughs> floods and fires, right? And and New Zealand, there are um, all, all sorts of things linked to water supply and quality that can be linked back to climate change as well. Um, never mind glaciers melting and retreating. But uh, yeah, it's, it's something that impacts people in different ways. And it's also climate change is an environmental justice issue because the people who are first and worst impacted in many cases are people in the global south, people of color, oftentimes women who are already experiencing other forms of structural oppression. So we can't take that too far out of context as well. Um, people are in yeah, some weird. cases better insulated to be able to respond to the impacts depending on privilege. We've done a lot of shows about that, about how COVID and inequality and racism and the climate crisis are all intimately bound together and they can't really unravel them. My only concern with that kind of take, that kind mm -hmm. of argument, mm -hmm. is that the conversation becomes about everything and in a sense it's also then about nothing. Hmm. What do you mean? I'm curious. Well, if you're going to fix the world, you have to fix racism, you have to fix inequality, you have to fix climate crisis, you have to fix pandemics. And all those things, of course, are true. But mm. you've got to focus on one of them first, maybe climate crisis, but perhaps before anything else. Mm. Uh, if you are to address these multiple crises, because otherwise, it's just, it's too big to deal mm. with. Yeah, I mean, I can see what you're saying at the level of an individual, right? It's important to choose a focus and even with- Well, even it as an institution. Right, 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 right. I think it's also important in, at the same time that we address intersectionality and that people don't experience just one of these things at a time, right? They're all interconnected. And so while we can address them, um, as you're saying, one by one, um, as individuals or as institutions, there's also this point in which I, I think it can be dangerous to develop solutions without a, an intimate understanding of how all of these things that you're mentioning intersect. You use this word intersectionality. It's a yeah. polemical word, a controversial word. What do you mean by it? Um, well, I mean, I'd refer to the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and others who who um, are incredible, <laughs> frankly, and 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 have developed how this term should be used best. But it just means that we have to understand that people don't experience one thing at any one time. Um, so it's not just that you're experiencing climate change or experiencing racism or experiencing other forms of structural oppression. It's that those experiences combine together <laughs> um, to impact people in their lives in, in really specific ways. And so it's, it's giving the way I understand it and open to pushback if I'm getting this wrong, but it's giving more. Well, I'm not, I'm far from being an expert on these things. Yeah. 
do you consider yourself then in the book to be coming out of this school of intersectionality or do you did you try to avoid making it too theoretical and philosophical the book's about the stories and the book's about listening. Yeah, but and you're the one who chooses the stories. You're the listener. So you of course. choose what goes yeah, in and of out course. of the book. Um, of course, of course. But in some ways, the story, while I was choosing from among the stories I recorded, which ones to include in the text, um, in some ways, the stories chose me because I was very rarely approaching someone to ask them for a story. Instead, I was wearing this prompt, tell me a story about water or tell me a story about climate change on my body. <laughs> and then people yeah. were approaching me on the basis of that sign or recommending that I have a conversation with someone that they knew on the basis of that sign. So in some cases, it was sort of up to serendipity and chance. And I think that that was part of the, the magic and fun of this project in many ways. I've been listening, as I said this morning, to some of these the stories, the audio of the stories on your website, yeah. the, the Scottish one of... Um... <laughs> The of, of water was particularly resonant, the, the one mm. from Kazakhstan. I know it's like choosing between your children in terms of, um, not that you have any children about which your favorites are, but are there a few stories that really resonated with you in terms of these hundred and a thousand and one voices? Um, so many, and it changes day by day. I have to be honest. Well, what's, uh, what's your favorite one today? Or what are your handful today? of ones today? Oh my goodness. Um, whew, I, I have a friend here where I'm living in Vermont who's in her nineties and her eyesight has been declining. So while she was a journalist and able to read and write earlier, um, that ability is not there anymore, but she loves to be read too. So I've been reading out loud from the book. I was doing that earlier today to her and we were reading from the Fiji section. And there's one part that was really, really fun um, about one of the first nights I was there. Um, I was just had the chance to be in conversation with people who were drinking um, kava, which is this brown, um, brownish drink. You drink it out of a, a half coconut shell and kind of sit around outside at night and share stories and drink this grog. <laughs> and um, there was one man in his 50s named Ateli who told me that uh, climate change is experienced differently in Fiji than it is in the U.S. And he, he had this really interesting take about cement and how villagers taking sand from the shore taking and taking is using this kind of new building material and new te newer technology to the area as opposed to bamboo and wood in the past um that the water is coming closer at the same time and um he, he told me people say the islands are disappearing because of the rising tides but it's not about the environment up there in the air it's how we use it down here on our land and then he continued, the sea will come and take back what we have taken. And so it's just an interesting take on, um, how, how do I say this? The power just of nature. The power of nature, but also the power that we have as individuals, how our individual choices within the landscape and the building materials that we use and things like that matter. Um, yeah, and it was, it was uh, really wonderful to remember that story as I was reading it out loud to my friend earlier today. I was struck by the fact that you went to China mm -hmm. um, and, and that you have some stories from Chinese people, people living in China. Uh, what was the experience in China and, uh, uh, and, and how much freedom did you have in terms of talking to people? Were you in any way concerned? Did you have to have permission? People taking a risk talking to you and being recorded? Um, you know, I... 
I never felt that risk, but also I was limited in what I was able to do just by nature of only being there for a couple of weeks, but also the fact that I don't speak Mandarin or any other local languages that are spoken in that region. Um, so I uh, worked with an incredible English student, a recent um, graduate of an English college in and around Chengdu named Eva, and we translated a version of the cardboard sign into Mandarin and then walked around together to various parts of the city and region. Um, and that was super fun. <laughs> um, and then I continued on in Beijing on my own where uh, the the story that's on the map is um, from someone who's from Singapore originally is fluent in English. So there, there was, you know, a, a limit to what I was able to do. Um, but I also connected with some uh, really interesting activists from Greenpeace who talked to me about um, the way that environmental activism looks different in, in China than it does in other parts of the world. And for them, it's less about protests um, or showing up in a way that isn't um, sanctioned, shall we, say, shall we say, by the Chinese government. But instead, um, they did really interesting things like making rating cards for different companies where they would kind of pit them against each other and companies that scored better on uh, different environmental or climate terms um, would be able to see <laughs> that and get an award of some kind. And then companies that didn't score as well would see that too. So they're really working um, within the space that they have and um, bringing, raising the same issues, but in a, in a different way, a way that's perhaps less confrontational and more working directly with the companies and government agencies um, in order to advocate for the same kinds of concerns. Is there a fear that uh, that this issue is most suited to technocracy, that it's not really democracy friendly? Uh, I know you have some voices from Kazakhstan. I was just in Kazakhstan actually a couple of months oh, yeah. ago. Um, and in your website, you you also spoke uh, in Almaty in, in 2018. Kazakhstan is an interesting country, but it's anything but a democracy. Um, what is your feeling on technocracy versus democracy when it comes to fixing a lot of these solutions? Hmm. Can you tell me more about what you mean by technocracy? Well, technocracy is perhaps what the Kazakhs might like to present their government as perhaps the Chinese, certainly the Singaporeans, as being the wisdom of scientists in terms of addressing this issue, as opposed to the voices of the people in a democracy where, mm. um, say, for example, when it comes to COVID, even though people aren't necessarily well equipped to make a decision on whether or not they should have a vaccine. They choose not to for mm. irrational reasons, reasons that don't conform to any scientific analysis. Got it. Okay. I understand now. Yeah. I think that, you know, both within any system of government, there's, there's a danger about who's having power to make decisions and who's within the room, whose voices are in the room and whose voices are not. And um, on the democratic side of things, I think there's a valid critique where we think about, you know, the ways that corporate interests and interests of specifically the fossil fuel industry <laughs> are um, able to, you know, buy votes within the Senate, let's say, <laughs> or um, that that corporate interests can be overpowering the voices of people who are most impacted by these issues right now. Um, on the flip side, in a technocracy, as you mentioned, there's there's the concern about 
you know, who's even allowed to speak up and speak out in the first place. And in many countries around the world, um, it's very dangerous to be an environmentalist. You mentioned Jordan Salama's work earlier, and, and one of one of the stories in his book is about a um, someone who's advocating for local environmental issues who he interviewed, yeah. who, who was then shot, killed um, months later, and and that's that's tragic, and it's tragically common in many parts of the world. I think one of the reasons because again, I think what Jordan, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I think what Jordan was saying in in when I talked to him was that environmental politics and politics politics are so bound up with one another mm-hmm. that uh, you know the interests of large corporations and of wealthy families and wealthy classes are uh, are, are, are necessarily um, prone to I mean once you start criticizing what's happening in the environment you're criticizing the structures of economic and political and cultural power well, it's all it's all intertwined, right? These these. Yeah, that's your intersectionality, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> to get to bring it full circle back to intersectionality, yeah. But you know, all the terms aside, it's 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 really about listening to people who are impacted right now and amplifying those voices, making sure that their stories and their interests are in powerful rooms, and that's really the the overarching hope of this text is that we can diversify the idea of expertise. Expertise includes lived experience and lived experience of climate change is something that is just as valid and important that we need to be considering right now alongside the voices of climate scientists. Debbie, finally, you're obviously American. You just, you graduated from Harvard. There are lots of stories from the United States, from Washington, DC, from Boston, Lots of stories from Seattle on your website. Is there anything about America that you can generalize about? A lot of people see America as the problem with the climate crisis. Others might see it as the solution. Um, It's certainly not a technocracy. If anything, it's the reverse where uh, the consequences of democracy are being played out in ways in which we can't address the crisis. We can see what happened uh, this week with Joe Manchin and his unwillingness to um, invest large amounts of money in in, in the climate. Mm, yeah, yeah, it gets back to coal, right? <laughs> in, right. In, his vested in West Virginia. I don't know if you were in West Virginia, but certainly you were yeah. in those parts of the country. Yeah, I mean, it's it. While it is impossible to generalize, I would point to some really incredible research that's been done by the Yale Program for Climate Change Communication. They do longitudinal studies that um, look at the way that the American public is thinking about and responding to climate change. And it's not so neat that we can divide the country into climate change believers and climate change deniers, but rather yeah. they have this gradation where it's folks who are trolls on one end um, and folks who are, you know, maybe concerned about these issues, but not sure how to incorporate them into their daily lives. And then folks who are completely dedicated every moment to climate action on the other end. And there's many small gradations in between. But overall, what they found with these studies is that um, people are becoming more concerned. And, And I guess we could say waking up to these issues nationally. And so I think it's really important that we harness that energy <laughs> um, and and work collectively towards, towards solutions and towards solutions that take into account very intimately the, the experiences of people who are living with the impacts right now. Well, that's what you've done, I think, Debbie, uh, as, as much as anything in your 
1001 Voices on Climate Change. You provided energy. You provided a place to articulate the voices of people directly affected, both in the book and on your website. Congratulations. Really remarkable achievement, I think. Um, yours is a name that will become better and better known, and I'm thrilled that you um, that, that, that you undertook this project. Uh, are you working on a new book? Mm, yes. <laughs> um, are you willing I'll to be... talk about it, or we'll, we'll, should we wait sure, and see what sure. it is? Sure, sure. I mean, there's, there's two ideas. One is a fiction project that I'm noodling around with. Um, the other is super new, but I, I would love to work on a book about monarch, monarch butterfly migration. Um, there's Lovely. ways... Um, Anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But well, <laughs> you're always welcome to come back on the show. And um, as I said, uh, I think this this new book of yours, "A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change," is a must for read for anyone who cares about climate change, which I hope is all of us. Um, what else, Debbie? You're talking to me from um, uh, from Vermont at the moment. You're about to move to Philadelphia. What else in late 2021 should we be reading in these strange? times. All right. Love this question. Again, thank you for having me on. That's my book. Um, this was a book, uh, it's fiction. It's called Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli. This was very helpful to me structurally when I was writing the text. And if you read both of them side by side, you might see some parallels, but it's an incredible book about um, a journey uh, from New York to the American Southwest. It's a book about- Do you know the author? Valeria Luiselli. Do I know her? No. This was recommended to me by a journalist friend as I was writing. Uh, okay. Um, well, we'll have to maybe get that author on the show too. Got me out of a hole. Yeah, Valeria is incredible. She is. She's so smart. I. I've. One of the benefits of <laughs> the pandemic is being able to listen to Zoom talks um, from all over, and and uh, hearing her speak was incredible. So I highly, highly recommend Valeria. And then the other book I'd recommend is called On Time and Water. Um, it's by an Icelandic author, Andri Snare Magnusson. Um, and this is the book, copy and translation. Uh, but speaking of, of climate change and water, he looks at the impacts of climate um, thinking forward and backwards within the history of his own family and the changes that Iceland has undergone in the recent and distant past. It is lyrically gorgeous. Just the individual sentences are something that I want to stay with and chew on. It's almost like poetry. Um, but then the the way that the book is structured as well, it's just very very digestible and calming and concerning at the same time, which is, it's just a book that makes you think. So those would be my two recommendations. Well, when it comes to digestibility and coherence, I would certainly suggest A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change, Devi Lockwood's first book of many, I hope. Uh, Devi, real honor to have you on the show. Congratulations. Keep well, keep writing, keep shouting, keep talking to people. We need your voices and we need we need your voice and we need the voices that you are committed to unleashing. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be in conversation. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keen On Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. 
Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have a, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant